and welcome to the Bloomberg Tech Disruptors podcast. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Mandeep, and with me today is Jamie Heinemann, the Chief Technology Officer of John Deere. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Mandeep, it's a pleasure to be here. And I'm also joined by my colleague, Chris Cialino. We are here live at the CES uh, show in Las Vegas, so couldn't be more excited to get uh, some time with Jamie today. And uh, let's jump uh, right in. You know, I mean, here is a 185-year-old company. You guys have seen a lot of technology cycles. And, uh, you know, the fact that you are here at this show, technology shows, showcasing a lot of technology and how you think, you know, agriculture equipment is going to deploy a lot of the new stuff. Maybe your perspective on uh, what is it that you are most excited about and then we can take it from there. Yeah, I, I think it's a fabulous question. You know, I think the place that I would start is just the speed of change at, at the current point in time is incredibly fast. If you think of where compute is moving, um, both at the edge and in the cloud, if you think about um, the state of connectivity and how close we are to solving for ubiquitous connectivity across the planet. Uh, and then if you think of the state of uh, artificial intelligence and, and advanced algorithms in the form of you know, machine learning, uh, computer vision, uh, gen AI, et cetera, there's just a, a tremendous number of technology vectors that are coming together at the same place at the same time that are in many ways complementary, that help us solve for some of the very difficult problems that exist in agriculture. Got it. So, uh, look, I mean, uh, we talked to a lot of uh, companies, you know, with different backgrounds, and everyone has their own view of AI and machine learning. And we've come a long way with, you know, just talking about AI. What is it in the current state of, you know, ChatGPT and Gen AI that you think has changed in terms of the applicability of technology and how will it improve the equipment that, uh, you know, you'll be rolling out over the next few years? Yeah, I think the transformer models for us are interesting in a couple different ways. And maybe, Mandeep, I'll, I'll look at it sort of from an internal to deer perspective to start with. Um, if you think about the, the opportunities, and, and Deer is not uh, alone in this, if you think about the opportunities for businesses to transform and automate um, and augment what are uh, traditionally um, very time-consuming and repetitive or rote type of, of activities within a business um, that we all have internally, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity with uh, generative AI and transformer models to, to um improve the efficiency of those things. One of the, the examples of that you know, near and dear to my heart as a software developer is in software development. I think there is a significant opportunity for generative AI to be used to augment code development. Um, and, and frankly, you know, software development is often one of the pacing items for us from a, a product development, a solutions development perspective. So anything that we can do to improve the efficiency of software development uh, is uh, an opportunity for us to get products into customers' hands faster and create more value faster. Uh, so I think that's an interesting opportunity that, that we've been exploring. On the external sort of customer-facing side of the opportunity space, 
you look at uh, what we're doing with the autonomous tractor here, particular in particular at the show, uh, you know, it is relying upon CVML from stereo cameras in order to identify objects and, and the distance to those objects that um, make it you know possible for us to operate safely or stop when we can't. Um, and that requires a tremendous amount of data assimilation. We have to go out and, and capture images um, uh, through lots of different scenes and poses uh, with humans in them, without humans in them, with odd things in the picture that you might only encounter once, uh, you know, every thousand hours of running. Uh, and so it takes a tremendous amount of work to go out and, and collect that actual in situ information that you can use for, for training of the, the perception models. Gen AI gives us the ability to start to recreate or create uh, artificially, uh, if you want to think about it that way, some of those corner conditions that are really hard for us to, to create in real life, so to speak, uh, and then assimilate those into a training set and see how they, they work against the test set, right? Uh, and that takes a, a significant amount of the, the data acquisition burden off of the development teams to go find those unique corner conditions, those unique cases to put into the training data set when you can create them instead. Uh, so that's a really interesting opportunity for us. It gives us the opportunity to sort of hit that 99.9 .9 percentile uh, conditions that just don't exist commonly, uh, but do exist at times uh, and to recreate those um, when we need to on our schedule as opposed to when, you know, in the agricultural environment when nature might provide them. Speaking of autonomy, I think Deer has a, a target of having a fully autonomous corn and soy system by 2030. Um, how are we tracking toward that target? And I guess secondarily, what, what do you think is the, the hardest thing to automate on a farm? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. So, you know, we've been um, working with customers over the last three years with the autonomous tillage solution that you're seeing demonstrated here at the show. Um, the speed with which we can get to a fully autonomous corn and soy production system is really uh, going to be paced by our ability to, to scale that technology into the other applications. So um, you look at the tractor and the tillage tool, it's a relatively small step, I think, for us to get from there to the tractor and the planter that you see here on the show floor, uh, because it's the same machine form, the tractor is just doing a different job pulling the planter as opposed to a tillage tool. Uh, it gets harder when you transition from that to the, the sprayer that's right down below us here, uh, because that uh, extends the working envelope to, you know, instead of 40 or 50 feet worth of work, worth of working width, 120 feet of working width, and, it, and you have to accommodate uh, higher speeds. The application speeds are higher, et cetera, and so on. So there's a technological challenge for us to overcome there that we don't have solved yet. And then also in the applications that that sprayer uh, is used in. Uh, the crop has already emerged. So the seeds are out of the, they've, they've, they've germinated, the crops, the plants are already out of the ground. And so you're not dealing with this nice um, uh, fallow field where everything is visible, right? You can see everything with cameras. So you uh, introduce the, the idea of having to add some different sensor modalities into that context in order to do the perception job adequately. Uh, and then the problem gets harder once again from a perception perspective when you look at the, the harvesting operation, the combine operation in corn in particular, because by then the crop is very mature. You know, it's uh, eight to 12 feet tall. Uh, it's very dense. It's very difficult to see through it and uh, visually in the visible light spectrum. And so you have to solve that problem uh, in the harvesting step. It's also a very dusty environment. And so the, the visual solutions that you have with Stereo vision alone 
probably not sufficient to solve that problem. Um, all that said, I still remain pretty bullish on being able to get that work done by 2030 because the um, while there are different sensor modalities that are going to be necessary, by and large, we know what they are. And it's not that they're readily available. We have to modify some of those things uh, and in some sense, in some cases, create those sensing elements. But we know what they are and how to create them. So um, it's uh, it's new work, but it's work we know how to do, if that makes sense. And so I think the, the line of sight to 2030 is uh, still, still pretty strong vision. And then what have you guys thought about like what's the yield improvement potential or, or net farm income improvement potential for a, a fully autonomous farm versus you know traditional farming today? Yeah, yeah. Super super interesting question. The answer is nobody really knows uh, right now, and I'll I'll explain maybe a little bit why. So part of the reason we started um, the autonomous work with going in with small numbers of units with farmers and working very closely with them to understand value creation was to answer this question exactly. Um, because your your mind immediately goes to this is just a labor arbitrage opportunity, right? I'm just taking somebody out of the cab of the machine that I'm paying, you know, 15, 20, 25 dollars an hour for. And that's certainly part of it, right? Um, but the bigger opportunity, and this is what we're we're finding out, is uh, in many cases the person you're taking out of the cab of that machine is the farmer themselves. And so it allows them to go do higher value work. Uh, so there's an opportunity cost associated with it that is different farm by farm, uh, interestingly enough. And then the part that is difficult to put a price tag on uh, or a value, associated value with, is um, the quality of life improvement. So, you know, the, the stories are, are almost never ending of the farmers that we've worked with who say, um, you know, the autonomous tractor changed my life because I got to enjoy a warm dinner with my family. Uh, and I hadn't had the opportunity to go do that in two weeks if I had to be in this tractor you know, for 14, 16, 18 hours a day. Or I got to go see my son or my daughter's athletic event at school or their play at school or whatever. And I would never have been able to do that before. But I can do it now because there's work, useful work getting done on the farm when I'm not there. Um, and so those are the sorts of things that you know farmers themselves are starting to unpack and expose in terms of value uh, opportunity, which also makes us think about you know, business model, like, do you want to be able to turn that autonomous capability on or off at your discretion, at your disposal? Do you want to operate the machine for, that's why there's a cab still on the machine, one of the many reasons. Do you, do you want to be able to operate the machine in some places, in some cases, because you get enjoyment and satisfaction out of that, or you want to make sure that it's done the way you want it done? And then do you want the opportunity to exit the cab at times and go enjoy that meal or go and go, go participate with your family? So. Those are value creation opportunities that don't readily lend themselves to us putting a dollars and cents term on them, you know? Uh, so that's why it's important for us to, to gain some more exposure with customers and really validate uh, in their operations because they are, every farm is different. How do they think about it? How, would it, how does autonomy fit into the farm and what kind of value it creates? Let's turn to competition. And I'm going to start off with a curveball question, you know? When we think about equipment, especially semi-gap equipment, we know, you know, ASML is the only company that has the EUV machines and it's highly sought after. Is there a parallel here with, you know, what you guys do on the agriculture side? Is there a machine that you have that no one else has and, you know, you just have the secret sauce to do it better than your competition? I think one of the things that um, 
makes us different Mandeep from our competition is our vertical integration through the technology stack. So um, it is uncommon and I would say we're deer is um, pretty much alone in the agricultural space for being vertically integrated from you know board layout, design, manufacturing, we still manufacture a lot of our, most of our, our own electronics through middleware, our own operating system, our own middleware, our own application code, uh, sensor design development, sometimes manufacturing. There's no other, uh, there's no other agricultural company that vertically integrates like that. And I actually think that's important because if you talk, so, talk about some of these higher order uh, technology capabilities like autonomy, it's important for you to know um, capability all the way through the stack. Uh, it's important for you to know not just capability, but for what the performance uh, the, the performance area is for the components and for the systems and for the software that's operating uh, together conjointly as a system to make that autonomous tractor in this case run. And we're one of, the, of a very few number of, of companies that work in agriculture that can do all of that together. You know, as an example, the, the uh, we call them vision processing units, the VPUs. Uh, that we use for the autonomous tractors are the same ones we use for sea and spray. They're running, uh, you know, a, a, a GPU that was originally invented not to serve the agricultural market, but to serve the gaming community. Um, and it was meant to be actively cooled, right? We were, we were supposed to have a cooling fan that keeps this thing, uh, blows air across it and, and convectively cools this, uh, cools the compute. And that just doesn't work in our environment, right? We have to passively cool things because our environment's very dusty. It's full of corrosive chemicals. You know, you've got rain, you've got snow, you've got dust and mud, all of these things. And so forced air cooling is generally something to be avoided in agriculture. And so we had to design a, we had to design a processing unit that was capable of running that GPU at 30 watts of power when fully, fully loaded and do that and passively cool it. There's nobody else that does that because we that nobody else has those sets of same set of requirements, and I think the vertical integration of the company and how we approach that is one of the enablers. Just to uh, piggyback on that, uh, like in terms of deployment, what is it that is holding you back at this point of time? Given you have the technology, you know you've been building this for years, and you know the advancement in GPUs actually helps you with the processing power. Where do you think, you know, this can fall, given we have heard so much about IoT over the years, but for some reason, IoT didn't take off the way people expected it. So is there a chance that, you know, certain things need to line up still for this to really take off in a big way? Yeah, I think the scale question is an interesting one. One of the things I think that limits, um, limits uh, app customer appetite and demand um, in some of these cases is uh, availability of connectivity. We're conditioned to think about connectivity as you know, terrestrial cell connectivity and, and is the person or the house connected, or the household or the business, whatever it might be. But in agriculture's case, we really worry less about whether the individual person is connected and more about is every acre that they are farming connected. And that's a different way to look at connectivity. And in, in, if you use that as a metric, uh, we actually don't have great connectivity in agriculture. There are lots of farms that suffer from poor connectivity. So let's play that out a little bit. If you have a farm that 
uh, doesn't have connectivity on every acre. Uh, the autonomous tractor that we're showing all of a sudden doesn't doesn't um, uh, maybe um, create as much value on your farm as it otherwise could because if it encounters something that the perception system says stop, uh, what the way that, that we um, put the human back in the loop when those conditions happen is we send you what is the image that caused it to stop on your mobile phone and you say whether or not as a as the farmer um, I don't need to stop for that or I need to stay where you're at and I'm going to come clear whatever the obstacle is. If you don't have connectivity none of that happens right and so the value of that technology starts to break down without connectivity. It's why we've been working really hard um, on this uh, opportunity in satellite-based connectivity uh, in order to, to try to, to change the the narrative a little bit and, and augment terrestrial cell connectivity, which continues to improve, but give us an opportunity to connect those customers and those acres, frankly, that um, historically will ha have not been connected with terrestrial cell and the business case to connect them is, is, is relatively poor for the telco companies. We need to find a solution for that. We actually think the, the recent commercialization of, of space uh, has made satellite connectivity a, a really good opportunity. How many, and speaking of connectivity, how many connected machines or engaged acres do you guys have today? Um, and, and, you know, how accessible um, is connectivity, both only uh, not only here in North America, but also Brazil being such a, an important growing region? Yeah, yeah fantastic, uh, fantastic question. I'll start with the last question first. So you just look at on an acre basis. Um, and these are rough numbers. Um, our data would suggest that 30% of the arable acres, the farmable acres uh, in the U.S. today that could that, that are farmed are not connected. 70% are with terrestrial cell. Um, and in Brazil, you can just about invert that ratio. 70% are not connected, 30% are connected. So the opportunity is great in both cases, um, but it, it's significantly greater just by virtue of the build out of the infrastructure uh, or lack thereof in Brazil versus the US. Uh, and, and that tends to be a statement also about population density. Uh, um, you know, the, the number of machines that are connected, we're at about uh, somewhere over 600 and some odd thousand, don't quote me on the exact number, but uh, that we've connected today uh, to date. Uh, those are machines that uh, predominantly are our large ag machines, large construction machines, large road building machines all of which are, are using that telematics connection to take the data from the machines, uh, from the sensing uh, suite, the sensor suite that's on the machines, and push that data into operation center where customers use it to, to make better sense out of their, um, their operation, their farm, or their work site, or their construction site, whatever the case might be, to help them make better decisions. And as we think about like some of the satellite technology that could improve connectivity, I mean, what milestones sh or should we be looking at? Like, what's the roadmap to when that becomes more commercially available? Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, we've been testing a, a couple of different solutions over the last 12 to 18 months uh, in field with customers. Uh, we're going to roll out a limited, uh, we'll call it a limited production build, a small number of customer uh, sold units over the course of 2024 with the intent to go to full production in 2025. Um, importantly, those units will be targeted not to new pieces of deer equipment. Uh, so they're not going to be installed and put on uh, a piece of equipment in a John Deere factory. Our initial offering will be um, a, 
what we are calling precision upgrade. It's an opportunity to put it on the existing installed base of equipment. Uh, because you think about some of these machines that you see here, they their useful life is 15 years, 20 years in some cases. Uh, and so the ability for us to expose value and create value for customers on those pieces of equipment over two decades is really strengthened when you can put connectivity on that piece of equipment. So we'll start with a field kit first and retrofit the existing installed base of equipment and unlock some of that value on equipment that customers already own. Maybe, uh, you know, let's turn to robotics, which seems to be a big theme uh, at the show as well. Uh, you know, when you talk about building your own systems and vertical integration, how much of the deployment will reflect in type of uh, robotic sort of uh, a phone factor? Is that something that would fit with the agriculture uh, kind of use case or is too far-fetched? No, I, I think it's absolutely not too far-fetched. Um, I actually think the future of this company is um, strongly tied to our capability in delivering the world's best field robotics. Um, and so if you think about the, the value that we can create in our use cases, uh, they're effectively use cases where we can sense something that's happening in an environment. And, and generally it's an unstructured environment, you know, a farm field, a construction site, a road building operation. We sense something that's happening in that environment. The first step in, in the, the technology curve, development curve, is you just tell the human in the loop what it is that you sensed so that they can make a better decision. A logical next step is to augment that human's action, right, and do it for them or offer to do it for them. And that's where the robotics piece really comes in. And so we do that today. Uh, we're showing a, a technology we call FuroVision on planters today. FuroVision is effectively giving uh, a farmer eyes into uh, what is a very chaotic environment at the planter where the seed is placed into the ground. And uh, you know, historically, the way that that work has been done is the farmer will go out and they'll plant 100 feet uh, in a field and then they'll get out of the tractor and they'll go literally dig where they place the seeds and make sure that the seeds are spaced appropriately and that they're the right depth in the ground. And they might adjust some things on the planter to make it better. And then they'll get back in the tractor and they'll go finish planting in the field. Furrowvision gives us the ability to see exactly what's happening in real time in furrow as the seeds are being planted. And then not have to have the farmer get out of the tractor to go make the adjustments on the planter. But we'll just do that for them, right? That's a form of robotics, right? It's a feedback loop with a sensor, in this case being a visual sensor camera uh, in, in the, the seed furrow, telling us exactly what we need to know in order to make the changes that produce the most optimal outcome. Uh, I guess when it comes to, uh, you know, robotic and uh, comparing it to autonomous driving, level four, level five has been hard for companies that have been trying to solve the autonomous driving problem. So is it a data problem that needs to be solved for, that you need to collect more data for the robotic systems to get better? Or what is it that you think will happen over time, which will really improve the quality of results that we'll get from uh, these systems? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, so let me let me first sort of ground, ground everyone in what we're doing from an autonomy perspective. So what we're not doing is allowing uh, on highway autonomy. So you're not going to, the tractor doesn't drive itself from uh, the farmyard to the field if that path is over a public road, okay? 
So the farmer still has to drive the, the tractor and the implement to the field. Once you cross the field boundary, and, and every field is GPS bounded, okay, so we know exactly when the tractor and the tillage tool, in this case, crosses the field boundary, then it's possible to enable autonomy. Um, and what makes the autonomy problem different in agriculture than it is in on highway are a couple things. Some work for us, some work against us. Uh, the ones that work for us are, it's a much slower environment, right? We're typical application speeds in, in the farming operations are 10 to maybe 20 miles an hour, right? As opposed to the on highway uh, speeds of, you know, 50 to 70 miles an hour. Uh, and so uh, our ability to, our need to perceive as far in front of us as, as uh, on highway would is diminished. We don't have to have a perception system that sees nearly as far in front because stopping for us, number one, stopping is always a safe thing for us to do in, in uh, the agricultural environment. And two, uh, our speeds are relatively slow, so it happens relatively quickly. That's one thing that works for us. The second thing that works for us is the, the environment. Uh, and I'm gonna say this tongue in cheek, I'm gonna, I'm gonna argue both sides of this one. Uh, our environment in a field is pretty homogenous, meaning there's not a lot of variation in the environment, right? The field is pretty um, consistent across the field, uh, as opposed to on highway where, you know, if you're to drive in Las Vegas down the strip, you've got a, a wide variation of street signs and, and markings on the, on the highway and pedestrian crossings and all sorts of vehicles that are in your way, all different sizes, all different speeds, much more chaotic environment. The flip side that I'll argue now is that agriculture is also a very, um, uh, non-homogenous environment, but in a different way. And it's in a different way because it's different through the growing season. So the plants, when they're just emerging out of the ground, look very different than they do when they're mature plants. Uh, and so the, the data has to take that into account. You need um, you know, well-represented data across that growing cycle. Um, it also is different by crop type. So corn looks very different from soybeans, from wheat, from lentils, from chickpeas, from from grapes, from, you know, dot, dot, dot. And so the, the variety of the operations that occur in farming because of the variety of crops that are produced uh, lends itself to the uh, significant data issue, right? You need to collect data or be able to create the data uh, across all of those different spectrums of, of production systems. We're talking about the cotton production system here on the floor today. That's another example, right? The cotton plant looks very different from a corn plant. So the model that we would use for perception reasons in corn will not work uh, completely in a, in a cotton. So circling back to some of the products on the show floor today, whether it be Furrow Vision or Exact Emerge or uh, Sea and Spray, um, they seem to focus a lot on the uh, planting and fertilizing stages of the crop life cycle. What does that next generation of intelligent products look like? Where, do, where does the, the focus shift in the crop life cycle? Yeah, uh, interesting. Interesting question, Chris. I think, um, first of all, one of the reasons the input side of farming is important to us is because it's important to our farmers. It's, it represents a majority of the, um, of the investment that a farmer would need to make in any particular growing season. It's a majority of their costs, okay? And so anything that you can do to reduce what is the majority of their, uh, their costs is something that's very, very interesting and attractive to them, right? That's why we focus so hard on the side of things. I think um, one of our limitations today in 
addressing the, the input side of the agronomic equation is we don't know what the plant needs until it expresses what it needs in um, a visible way, uh, because we're typically looking at the plant with through the visible light spectrum of cameras, right? Uh, and so as an example, you don't know that uh, a corn plant might have a nitrogen deficiency, needs more fertilizer, until you already see the leaves yellowing. Uh, and by that point in time, there's already a yield penalty, meaning the maximum potential of that plant has already been diminished uh, because it needed nitrogen probably a week ago, not when you just started to see it, right? So I think the next opportunity for us is to use the plants themselves as sensors. And this is um, sounds crazy and a little bit out there, but it's it's happening as we speak. Um, we we've we partnered with a company uh, called Interplant. Interplant's a company that is using uh, genetically modifying uh, plants to express stresses that they experience uh, with a fluorescence. So they will um, emit a certain um, uh, a certain frequency um, of fluorescence based upon, and that's a different frequency based upon different stressors. So uh, as an example, we'll go back to the nitrogen deficiency in this corn plant. Uh, if a corn plant had a nitrogen deficiency uh, and it knew it on day one, it could fluoresce at a certain wavelength. And we could sense that on day one, and as opposed to on day seven, when we only see it in the visible light spectrum, and then go remediate that, apply nitrogen to the corn plant to eliminate or reduce the yield penalty that would occur by waiting until you can see it in the visible light spectrum, right? So that's something that's really, really interesting for us. And you can think about that with all different sorts of stressors on the plant. We talked about nitrogen, but you can think about water. Um, you know, why irrigate crops that don't need the water, as an example? Um, you can think about that with pests. Like, is there uh, an insect infestation that's happening in a certain part of the field and if so, why would I go spray the whole field? Let's just go spray the portion that is being impacted by the insects. And I know that because these plants are fluorescing because they've been bitten by an insect. Uh, fungus is another one. It's not uncommon to completely spray the total soybean field uh, to eliminate the fungus that, that um, might, might exist in the field. But if only part of the field is being exposed to that fungus, why wouldn't you just go spray part of it? And the sooner you know all those things, the better life the plant itself is going to have and the more productive it's going to be. So I think that's kind of a super interesting and compelling idea to think about the plant as a sensor in the total system. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Um, and then I guess, given there's so much data that you're getting from the, the plants or even the, the machines, um, how do you think about pricing some of these new precision products? I mean, are these all going to be kind of subscription type services, whether it be on an annual or a paper acre type basis, or, or farmers have the opportunity to kind of pay up front? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and it's one we're continuing to experiment with. I, I think um, some of the technologies will lend themselves towards um, subscription type of models, right? Um, you know, solutions as a service model, where it's a, a pay for uh, what you use type of approach. Uh, We've also seen, though, historically, that as the technology picks up adoption rate, eventually it gets to the point, and, and auto track for us, the, the hands-free guidance and tractors and sprayers and combines is a good example of this. Eventually, there, it becomes uh, so common for a customer to 
order it that way to purchase that technology, that it just makes more sense to put it in base and let it, you know, be, have it be a part of every piece of, of equipment that we produce. Uh, and so I think you'll see um, different technologies being approached different ways. Some of them will be uh, subscription type of models, uh, pay-as-you-go type models. Some of them may be um, foundational for other things. You look at connectivity as an example. Um, we want customers to be connected because they get more value out of everything that we produce when they're connected. Uh, so that's an example where we might be more incented to put that in the base of, you know, in, in every piece of equipment sooner rather than later, um, because it just creates a value opportunity for not just that first customer, but a second customer who might purchase the equipment, et cetera, and so on. Uh, so it's it's kind of an all of the above answer, which is probably unsatisfactory for the audience. I don't know, but I do think each individual um, technology is examined on its own merits and we determine what the best way to go to market is for that. It's also why it's important for us to, to go out and experiment with customers to see how they want to digest it uh, in their operations and, and what the, the, the appetite is for different ways to, to, go, to go to market. We're down to our last five minutes uh, for this episode. Thank you again for your uh, t- generous time uh, today. But uh, you can keep the answers brief. And, you know, really, it's to get your perspective on different topics that uh, we would love to find on. So uh, the world population will grow to 10 billion over the next decade. And do you think it's a positive driver given, you know, we talked about automation and all the things that you're excited about? Is that a positive driver or a negative driver for a company yeah, like this? Yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely a positive driver. I think there's the, the clear and compelling mission that John Deere and the people that work for the company are on is to provide an environment and the solutions for 10 billion people to be on the planet by 2050 and to feed them and clothe them with this cotton production system. Um, with fewer inputs than we've ever had to produce or, or apply uh, per unit of output in the future. And it's entirely possible. And I would tell you that technology is the primary way that we're going to look at Great. And uh, IoT versus robotics versus uh, AI, which one do you think will help you the most over the next 10 years? That's like picking my favorite child. Um, I actually think that they're all complementary, first of all. Um, But I would tell you that the advanced algorithm, uh, the AI in particular, where translational and and generative AI is going, I think probably accelerates um, value creation the fastest. Is cybersecurity something that keeps you up at night given all the data that you're collecting? Absolutely. Uh, we take it very seriously. Interestingly enough, for a, an agricultural-based company uh, to have to think about that, but our, our customers rely on us uh, to keep their data secure and safe, um, and we take we take uh, a lot of precautions to, to make that happen. In addition, uh, not just on the internal side of the company, but externally, having people challenge our systems uh, in order for us to find the vulnerabilities before anybody else does so that we can try to make the most of your system. Got it. Any misconceptions that you want to clear on this podcast? Uh, you guys have done a great job of asking the questions. I don't think so. I would leave maybe with 
there's an incredible amount of technology that's happening in agriculture. It's sometime under the radar, so to speak, uh, but it's been that way for a very long time and it's critically important for it to continue to happen that way uh, because the world's going to depend on it. And lastly, what could go wrong with the assumptions that you are making? Oh, it's an infinite world of possibilities with that, I suspect. Um, you know, I, I think the, the one thing that is a challenge maybe, uh, and it's not that it could go wrong, but it's something that's very important to deer is you can't just create the technology and push it into the market. Um, you have to work with customers to make sure that there is, um, it's walk up easy. Uh, there's this whole user experience aspect of the technology that we deliver. It's a very complex environment. Our farmers are not technologists. If they can't understand it um, intuitively, how to make it work, then they won't use it. And, uh, and that's our challenge is to make sure that it's very simple and easy for them to use and that they can understand it very quickly. Jamie, this has been an absolute delight. Uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Chris and I really want to thank you for your time again and uh, all the best for the future. And uh, thanks for having us at CES. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure as well. Thank you both.